Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a really exciting one. He's the host of a fun podcast about people exploring their passions. Uh, Adam Unz from The Spark Parade is here. Welcome, Adam. Hi. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Our pleasure. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast? Uh, so I talk to artists and entertainers about the single most uh, influential cultural work for them. So that can be a book, a film, um, TV show, whatever they uh, are most passionate about. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's really great. I've been listening to a couple episodes. I liked the hereditary one a lot. Mm. I'm sure that that's not a surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So because you do sort of explore such a variety of stuff, um, I'm curious about your history with horror uh, personally, sort of like if it's something that you really enjoy or and you were like, oh, great, I get to talk to someone about horror on the show or if it's something that uh, exists sort of on the periphery of your media consumption but isn't something that you necessarily seek out that much. Definitely a huge horror fan. I have been pretty much my whole life. I was, uh, you know, started out as kind of a precocious little boy. I think I started reading Stephen King books when I was about eight. Um, <laughs> so really uh, got in on the, the ground level in terms yeah. of my horror obsession. And <laughs> it's been a nice perk. I, I have had a few guests, um, you know, obviously the topic that we discuss is up to the guests on my show. And uh, coincidentally, quite a few of them have wanted to talk about horror movies, which is like, okay, by me. Yeah. Um, I'm, I also, I want to hear about your experience, uh, with that because I don't often talk to someone who has a similar sort of hands-off approach in terms of the topic. Um, a lot of people ask me about sort of how I decide what movie we're going to talk about. And every time I'm like, no, I literally, it's entirely up to them. And that sort of leads into talking about how I react when it's something that I'm not necessarily a huge fan of. Mm -hmm. If someone picks a movie that I don't care for or whatever. So I, I'm curious on your end what it's like having that hands-off approach and what that means for uh, your experience with things. It it keeps it interesting, for sure. Uh, I, I think it's also uh, the way that I look at it is my show is equally about discussing whatever artwork that the guest wants to talk about and getting to know that guest. And it's kind of a, a window into their taste. Right. Um, it, you can learn a lot about people's lives as well uh, through the stories they tell about the, the artworks that they're most passionate about. So I take it as kind of a, a way to get to know these people. But also, if it is something that I have no connection to or something that I actively dislike, you know, just trying to think about it from the other person's perspective and uh, look at it from kind of a human interest uh, <laughs> from the uh, human interest side instead of actually trying to bond over this thing that we don't necessarily agree about. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that is similar to how I sort of approach it as well, where even if it's not something that I connect with on an aesthetic level or whatever, there's a reason that they picked it. There's a reason that it resonated with them. And so I try and find whatever it is that they're seeing in it. And I try and really bring that to the surface. And usually, if it's a, a movie that has connected with someone in this way, it usually made some cultural waves as well. So there's usually a lot to talk about from a cultural context in addition to their personal context, uh, which which I think really helps to give you something to latch onto and have sort of a, like a, a meeting point to talk about it. So. Yeah, that that and 
um, the history of whatever we're talking about as well. You know, the process of making a movie or, you know, writing a book or whatever, all the things that inspired that person to make the, the work of art we're talking about. So even if I'm not interested in the, the thing <laughs> itself, sometimes the contract, context can be interesting. Um, Definitely. So you mentioned Stephen King earlier. Do you have a favorite subgenre of, of horror that you find yourself gravitating to? Or is it just kind of a whatever, I'll take it all? Pretty, pretty much whatever. I'll take it all. I'm a, a pretty voracious consumer of all kinds of art. I'm a big cinephile. So, you know, I see all, all different kinds of movies. And then within horror, I, you know, have read a lot of horror books. Basically anything that could, in someone's mind, be described as horror, whether it's a TV show or a movie, um, bring it on. Yeah. Hell yeah. And I think that that really is a great transition into the movie that we're talking about today because I'm dying to know what drew you to this movie. We're talking about the 2008 movie by Pascal uh, Logier. I think it's how you say his name. Martyrs. And first of all, got to throw a huge content warning (laughs) on this one because a lot of uh, self-harm and stuff, uh, serious subject matter. So just put that out there right now. But it has sort of built up this reputation and it would be easy to feel like this movie is unapproachable for someone who is sort of like, Oh, do I want to see it or not? Whether like when they're considering it. So I'm curious about the first time you saw this, what drew you to it in the first place? If you sort of viewed it as a challenge because you were so immersed in horror. Yeah. Um, and I guess to add a little note to what we were just talking about in terms of the different kinds of horror, I think maybe people who aren't that interested in horror don't understand the diversity that it's, um, you know, you have horror comedies, there are slasher movies, there's torture porn, there's all of these different kind of subgenres. And, you know, I have people I, I, in my life who absolutely hate horror movies, can't cope with them, but there are certain subgenres that are like not too scary right. or have enough kind of levity thrown in and, um, you know, that they can handle those movies. And this movie is like, I guess harrowing would be the word. (laughs) Um, And I first saw it, um, I lived in London for a long time and there's a a horror film festival there every August. Um, There are two public holidays in August and the second one, there's a long weekend. So everybody has work off on the Monday. And uh, there's a movie theater called the Prince Charles. It's like a second run movie theater. Mostly it's like the kind of place that shows, you know, Rocky horror picture show and and that kind of stuff has like the big special event screenings, um, a repertory theater kind of thing. Right. Right. But then uh, once a year for four days, they have this horror festival that is fantastic. It's actually, you know, they, their definition of horror is very loose. It's a lot of kind of fantasy stuff as well. It gets thrown in. Um, but it is really, really fun. And I had gone a couple of times just to see individual kind of select films. And uh, the year when Martyrs was playing there, uh, my friend and I decided to get passes for the whole weekend. Right. And it was one of the most intense experiences in terms of consuming entertainment in my life because it, there was no break. It was like from 6.30 or 7 on a Friday until about 10 or 11 on the Monday. 
movie after movie after movie no breaks if there was a break it was like 15 minutes right and just while they changed the <laughs> change what's playing exactly yeah and like you know getting people out cleaning the theater getting people straight back in and um the theater is right near to Leicester square which is a big like uh you know touristy it's kind of like times square right and the only thing at that time especially that was available to eat it was like mcdonald's and burger king so we kind of <laughs> sustained ourselves on the worst possible <laughs> food and we're like it was you know august like bright sunshine beautiful outside and we were just like in this dark movie theater watching Cram down a burger get back totally in. <laughs> totally putting the most terrible images in front of our eyes that we could you know just like uh uh, on paper, probably not the best conditions, but it was so amazing <laughs> yeah. like we you know loved every second of it and that's how I saw this movie and I because we had a season pass it was like I didn't really even I don't know if I even looked to see what it was about we were just seeing everything so it was a, a kind of baptism of fire like you <laughs> yeah. know walking in some of the movies that we saw were just like you know et style things right that were you know fantasy things and this it's like I I really did not know what I was getting myself into and then yeah I was I, I was just kind of I don't think blown away is the right uh, phrase. It's more like, you know, I walked out and was just like, oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's affecting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's a really remarkable movie. To get a little bit into the background of it, it's the second movie made by Pascal after House of Voices. And since Martyrs, he's released a few others, uh, The Tall Man and Incident in a Ghostland. But this one in particular really sticks out, uh, in particular because of its inclusion and association with one of the more modern cinematic movements, uh, New French Extremity, which this name came about from art forum critic James Quant, although he meant it to be derisive. And like, I, w w I'm curious if you have used this as a springboard into exploring more of that sort of wave. It is one of the subgenres that is pretty distinct and you know sort of sits there as this like mountain to be scaled for a lot of horror fans where it does feel like something you kind of have to work your way up to right right and there are movies like did, did you have you seen high tension no i i haven't seen it i i was so when i was doing my research into this i saw that the the pillar French uh, uh, extreme movies are High Tension from 2003, which is sort of the one that kicked things off, really. And then Them in 2006, uh, Frontiers and Inside in 2007, and then this movie in 2008. And looking into those movies, I mean, they all sounded so interesting, but it, they all came with all of these sort of uh, warnings and everything that it does feel like a challenge. Um, and so you, you've, you've uh, explored high tension. You were saying, yeah, that was another one that I saw at fright fest. Uh, and the, for some reason, the UK title was switchblade romance, which I think oh, is a, a, yeah. an amazing, amazing <laughs> title, but you know, high tension, I think is a, a better translation from, or a literal translation from French. Right. And with that one, it's like, uh, the, the director is Alexander, uh, Aja, is that how you say his name? Right. He, yes. He directed like uh, Crawl, I think, and he's you know become kind of a, a Hollywood horror director. Right. He made the transition. Yeah, and that movie I enjoyed. I think that the ending of that was a bit wah, wah, to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
that, I think the difference between that and martyrs, in my mind, is that high tension, the violence feels a lot more like, it's it's not uh, beside the point, but it's uh, violence for the sake of violence to kind of say, this is a horror movie. Right. Um, it's there to shock, not actually to facilitate the conversation. Right, right. And with Martyrs, it is incredibly violent. There's so many horrible, disgusting things that happen, but it's all stuff that feels really essential to the story. Yeah. And I think that was the the kind of key difference between these two movies. The reason that Martyrs has stuck with me is that the story itself was so... It, it keeps you on your toes. Um, the first time I saw it, especially, it was like, I had no idea what's going on. Yeah. And from moment to moment, the story is kind of shifting and evolving. And it takes a really long time for it to become clear exactly what's going on. And then once you have that shift, it's like the, the tone changes completely. Right. It reframes itself a few times. Right, right. So I think from a storytelling standpoint, that kind of stuff, I like to be surprised. And I, I really like the feeling of going into a movie not knowing anything about it and being able to just like let it happen to me. I think that yeah. is much less possible now, you know. Uh <laughs> anytime I hear about a movie, it's like you're bombarded with things on social media where there's just like if not spoilers, people you'll get at least some kind of picture of of what it's about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I really feel like I have to be on like an aggressive media blackout about things that I want to <laughs> see like I have to you have to be like okay what do I think they're going to talk about let me build like a muted words list <laughs> on Twitter <Right. laughs> it, it it does feel a little excessive at times but I agree that it is nice to come into these as blind as possible and really feel like you can be taken along for the ride and I think that this is where festivals really do get a chance to shine people who are maybe considering uh, attending a festival in your own hometown when that's possible again, you really get to be one of the first pe people to check it out. And that means that you're not coming into it with other people's opinions or their picture of what it's going to be and everything. So it is a really cool experience that I definitely encourage people to try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the thing about this festival in particular is like, you know, I used to go to the London Film Festival a lot. I have gone to the New York Film Festival when it's actually been happening. Right. But the prices with those festivals, the the length, the duration of the festival is so long that having that same experience of being able to see everything without like, you know, a press pass, it's pretty prohibitively expensive. That's and true. it's also like who who you know w what people who are not in the film industry have the ability to just like say i'm taking two weeks off of work and all i'm right. going to do is watch movies and i'm going to spend a thousand dollars on it right um so you know i think you have to be a little bit more selective a lot of the times when you're going to uh film festivals and actually do some research and say okay these are the five movies uh, on the list that i think are the ones that appeal the most to me so having the luxury of you know i think it was still a bit of an expense, like more money than I would normally spend on right. going to movies. It was probably like 200 pounds or something like that for the whole weekend. But being able to say, I'm going to splurge this once. It was like going with one of my best friends and um, just having this experience saying, you know, we'll probably only do this once in our lives. Definitely. And just being able to like have, you know, good and bad uh, just <laughs> experiencing all of these movies. Uh, I think we probably saw about 20 in, wow. in the weekend. Um, so yeah, very intense. <laughs> De yeah, definitely sounds that way. 
so what 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 I find interesting about this film movement is that uh, whereas many of the the waves in film tend to consist of artists that hew together pretty closely in aesthetic and tone, the Greek weird is probably the most modern uh, example of of that. But New French Extremity is sort of more about the content than it is about the actual look of the film, which does sort of differentiate itself. A lot of the hallmarks of these movies uh, that I found called out were sexual decadence, (laughs) troubling psychosis, (laughs) and brutal violence. And I think that, uh, you know, that's kind of a, it's it's a, a clinical way to put those things, but I think that they definitely are extremely present in Martyrs in terms of being able to slot right into this uh this movement and it also uh utilizes this interesting fear of invasion by other that came up a lot um whether that's physical space being intruded upon in a home invasion uh your body being violated physically through violence or torture or even mentally through being brought to the breaking point and i just think that it's it's a really interesting exploration of this impermanence of the human body a lot mm-hmm. of the time they're using the that ex, uh, exploitation and even destruction of our physical form to sort of further our understanding of what humanity is and what it means and i feel like that's a really interesting thematic through line through these movies that is is very serious it feels like a very intense <laughs> uh, theme to be so interested in and i'm curious to get your thoughts on that yeah, and I think that idea bleeds through into other areas of this movie as well. But it's like, obviously, there is a home invasion element of this. There is uh, torture, both physical and psychological. For anyone who hasn't seen it, it sounds, sounds fun, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but uh, in addition to that, you know, dealing with all of these other issues, uh, you know, the the central kind of, I mean, I don't know how spoilery we're we're going to get here but the central idea that there's this like shadowy organization that's trying to find a true martyr to connect with god or to you know uh, examine the um, meaning of human existence right and so there's all these like weighty huge ideas kind of underneath all of the grim visceral torture sequences and this mystery that's happening so yeah i i think the uh now i've lost the thread (laughs) um the sort of that through line of the the destruction of the human body in order to explore humanity and everything and how right that is a a intense through line for for a theme to carry us through right and i think the slow unraveling of that as well that you can see um i think that's that there we go found it again that's what i was trying to say is like seeing the destruction of the human body, the destruction of the family unit, the safe space of someone's home, all those scenes at the beginning or that, that scene with the family where it's just like normal kind of domestic stuff, you know, sister and brother arguing with each other, people eating breakfast and having that play out for quite an extended period of time where you're just like, what, what exactly (laughs) is this? And having that just really abruptly interrupted with this, you know, very panicked, very distressed woman coming in and just like absolutely slaughtering everybody that, you know, before you even understand what the purpose of all these actions is, 
seeing those themes of, you know, uh, the destroying uh, bodies, manipulating bodies, and even without understanding the meaning behind it, it's still really affecting and uh, constantly surprising and just kind of keeps your head spinning. Like you don't, you know, uh, trying to uh, orient yourself and figure out exactly what's going on when, you know, your idea of what's going on keeps changing. And also not really knowing who to believe, um, you know. So Lucy, the the one who's the kind of totally uh, unhinged one at the beginning, just trying to understand whether she's telling the truth, whether she's just totally, you know, uh, it's clear that something terrible has happened to her, but whether it's like she's dealing with post-traumatic stress or some other kind of mental illness. And that's making her think that things that are the, uh, the things that she thinks are true, uh, you know, uh, she's, she's confused in her mind. She doesn't understand what's real and what's not anymore. And to some extent, that's also true, even though some of the things that she's saying are, um, you know, more founded in reality, but like trying to decipher the story in the midst of, of all this other chaos that's happening. Um, it's a, it's a lot. Yeah, it certainly is. In terms of filmic influence, many of the creators who are associated with this wave tend to pay homage to body horror icons like David Cronenberg. And Pascal himself has drawn the parallel to the torture porn wave happening around the same time here in America. And although there are exceptions to this, a lot more of the quote-unquote torture porn movies took more influence from grindhouse cinema of the U.S. as opposed to the arthouse cinema of Europe, which is sort of where they diverge a little bit. But I also think that the expected audience reaction is, uh, I think, where the difference truly lies. The violence in a movie like Hostel is supposed to titillate and make people like squeal with terrified delight. But in a movie like this, we're genuinely on the side of the victims here. The violence is oppressive, and it's hard to watch. And it's there for a point, not just to get the endorphins rushing through teenagers trying to play grab ass in the back of a movie theater. (laughs) To put it plainly, it kind of removes the porn part of the torture porn. Uh, equation Mm -hmm. that in a way that i think is really interesting yeah and i think in some ways with torture porn especially with a movie like hostel it's like the story serves the violence it's the story is like a vehicle for the violence right they have set pieces in mind they say we want to make sure that this happens how do we carry these characters to that sequence right right and with a movie like martyrs it's the opposite it's like the violence is necessary in the telling of the story. It's a, a vital part of conveying the message of the story, but the story is still the the focus. Right. I, one thing I also thought was really interesting when I was looking into uh, Pascal's sort of response to the reception of this movie is uh, he wanted to, he was upset when people didn't understand the way that this was uh, rejecting bourgeoisie ideals and subverting the dominant social orders and the sort of fantastical elements of martyrs in particular is a retaliation against dominating thoughts and the imperialism of mass media in terms of being like, this is what is the case. Everyone has to sort of think this one way. And Pascal feels that this has sort of brought us as a society to the tipping point of like despair, brutality, cynicism running just absolutely rampant. And this movie did sort of get lumped in, you know, it, it got all these people who, who missed the point of it at, you know, as always, this happens with so many movies. Um, but for someone who is trying to communicate a message and, and sort of 
undercut this dominant thought that is going through society. I mean, it's got to be just incredibly frustrating to see it so uh, incredibly maligned like that. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I think when you have a movie that has such extreme violence in it, it's something that tons of people are not going to be able to look past. And it is, you know, the, the, the sequence of um, in the sequences in the basement, just like the constant, you, you know, having this gigantic man come down and beat her up, having the woman come down and like force feed her this slop right and that's her entire life otherwise she's just like stuck in this metal room on her own with no stimulus uh, the stimuli just sitting yeah and the intensity of that like the the repetition in my mind it had gone on for much much longer that it's probably a five minute sequence and i think in my mind i felt like it was about 20 because yeah. it was just it's like really you feel like you are a part of that experience so elements like that i think i understand why this movie is off-putting to people like right. it's not it's not a fun movie to watch so you know there are a lot of contentious elements and a lot of uh divisive elements that i can i can definitely understand why people would either love or hate it yeah i I definitely agree i mean it's interesting too because i personally had put off watching it because i was like this is the kind of movie where i know that it sort of belies the reputation that it has of just being violent whatever and i know that there is something underneath it and that eventually someone will pick this for the show (laughs) (laughs) and so i want to come to it fresh and also I'm not sure how many times I'm going to want to rewatch this movie. And so not only coming to it fresh, but being able to know the limits of like, that's some, a lot of people who avoid it are just like, I know that I'm just not going to be able to get through it. I I agree. I think that there is sort of an element of um, people being unable to look past it just sort of for their own sake. Right. But I do recommend people checking it out. It is the best horror movie ever made after all. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I I also found a few other interesting quotes uh, from Pascal, where uh, despite what many do consider to be a boom in French horror, uh, he pushed back on this, saying, uh, "It 15 years ago, it would have been impossible to dream about making horror and fantastic films in my country. The whole system rejected the very idea of genre culture. Now, some of the guys who watched John Carpenter and George Romero's films on video when they were teenagers have become producer." So the French market has opened. It's a very good thing. We, the fans, expected it to happen for years. The problem right now in France is the general climate. Again, some people think violent movies should be taken out from multiplexes. There are a lot of debates, political discussions about the influences of nasty images on young people, and it's always the same old story. Anytime a society is hard, unfair, and brutal, horror movies are accused of everything it prevents the politics from taking their own uh, responsibilities about. Um, the fact that they created the terrible social social situation horror is just a mirror of its time. And I think that that's a really insightful way of sort of, you know, reflecting on the fact that people don't want to talk. Like they, they push horror away and sort of refuse to engage with it on a conversational level. A lot of times where they aren't willing to think about what the movie is trying to say and and communicate about 
the environment in which it was made. Um, and uh, I, I just thought that that was a, a really great quote. Uh, and, you know, it's un- unfortunate that he feels that way for, for French horror. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that, that idea that horror is this negative influence and that it's going to, you know, cause people to torture each other and, uh, you know, do all of these terrible sadistic things. It is the same laziness to me as, you know, people who think that there should be warning labels on hip hop records because the message is terrible and they're, uh, you know, corrupting, corrupting the kids or the same thing with video games, you know, all that stuff that it's like the reason why people commit crimes, the reason why terrible things happen in real life. There's it's, it's very complex. It's (laughs) it's not as easy as just saying, stop people from watching horror movies and everything's going to be okay. Right. So I think kind of drawing attention to that, you know, pointing out the ridiculousness of that is important but also talking about this movie in particular that it's like again the 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 story at the heart of this movie is uh the story is what drives the action right and as i've said you know the the violence uh serves the story there's a purpose for it and i think dealing with all of the other issues in in the film you know mental illness people growing up in you know, foster homes, not having uh, their parents with them, having suffered child abuse. And then also the kind of, you know, greater what is the meaning of existence questions that are kind of uh, thought about. And also like the idea of cults and people, um, you know, dedicating their lives to like this sort of nefarious pursuit of truth in this very, you know, terrible, obviously sadistic way. So there's all of these kind of interesting ideas that get thrown in. And, um, you know, I think the the mix of all those things works really well. And it really is, you know, a big part of it is just some people have a stomach for that kind of violence and some people don't. It's not like I, in this kind of movie, it's like you said, with torture porn, that it's not this kind of like gleeful, oh, this is, you know, oh, that's disgusting. (laughs) It is, uh, it's a much harder to watch. And I think that's why it stuck with me so much is... I don't, I don't think that I found it scary. Right. It just, uh, you know, <laughs> left me with this like pit of despair in my stomach afterwards. And uh, I don't know if that's a <laughs> necessarily a ringing endorsement for anybody who hasn't seen it. But No, I, I, I can totally relate. You know, that was the same way that I felt uh, when I walked out of Prisoners, uh, the Villeneuve movie. Mm. I like... I walked out, it was a bright, sunshiny Sunday afternoon, and I was just like, this just feels wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm, I am so affected by it that uh, it's, yeah. So, so I, I agree. And I think that this, it, it is a ringing endorsement that this movie is so effective in its messaging that it is able to communicate that, that feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. And I think it's funny that uh, he refers to this movie as a love story gone awry, which... <laughs> Like, okay, uh, it's in there. I I thought that was really great. But I think that that also sort of reflects his views of where French horror is and and the the view that uh, sort of the culture has of horror movies there. And, you know, it certainly is this love story, but it also has a heaping helping of nihilism uh, Mm -hmm. right on top. One of the noted production difficulties that Pascal said was, uh, quote, 
dealing with the fact that the actresses had to cry a lot almost every day <laughs> and it's something very difficult to obtain from the actress because after a while their eyes are as dry as their emotions i had to push them to make them accept falling again and again into their inner dark so that they would be convincing on screen and the shots would match and that, that there is like this this nihilism where you're uh, you're like oh is it worth it to go through this but also the going through it sort of is the point the medium is the message of putting yourself through this experience to come out the other side with a transcendent understanding of uh, of what they're trying to communicate that I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And also, I think the payoff for these poor actors having to suffer through that, the experience of filming the movie is that the audience has a similar feeling while they're watching it. It is a bit of an endurance test. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> sorry to the, the poor actors who had to suffer for, uh, for my entertainment. But. Well, you know, they say art is pain. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would also say one, one other thing that I, I like about this movie is I like horror movies that are not afraid to just end on the grimmest note possible and have some kind of ambiguity because like you know the the ending of this i don't think it's necessarily clear that they have contacted the other side or that you know this this woman has spoken to god it's like that can be interpreted in a few different ways and this woman you know the kind of cult leader deciding to just shoot herself doesn't necessarily mean that she's been told all the secrets of the universe and she can't handle it. But, um, you know, that was kind of the initial interpretation that I had, but I think it's still, you know, nothing is said explicitly. You don't actually hear what she's uh, been told. And that kind of brings me back to my, my Stephen King stuff as well, that, uh, the Stephen King books that I've loved the most are the ones that are just like relentlessly (laughs) grim endings, like really real, horror sure I'm, you know i'm thinking about like pet cemetery the end of that book where it's just like nope nothing good is gonna <laughs> happen here um and i think as he's gotten older he's gotten a little softer probably since his car accident yeah. um uh, most of his books have relatively happy endings and so i always feel like i know everything's gonna be mostly okay <laughs> at the end so and it's, it's, sometimes that's good too you know i'm i'm uh very open in uh, the, the kinds of horror that I appreciate, but um, I do have, I don't know if a soft spot is, is the right way to put it, yeah. but um, I, I do appreciate when a, a horror movie or a book is willing to just say, nope, this is actually just horrible. Yeah. Hey, and that also leaves it open to artists who adapt his work, like, uh, you know, with the mist where right. they change the ending and make it a thousand yeah. times bleaker. And yeah. you know, goddamn, it's a good movie. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. And it's like, it's one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations. And I think that, you know, the opposite is true of the American remake of Martyrs, where they're just like, oh, this is going to be too much for them. And we're going to pull it way back. Yeah, the san- when you sanitize something like this, where that violence is so integral to the story, because it is, it's not just there as the attention grabber, that sanitizing really works against the movie. Um, or whatever piece of art it it may be. Right. And it kind of just sucks all of the intensity out of it. And I mean, the, the American remake is much more like, you know, feels, it feels 
more in keeping in tone to with like uh i know what you did last summer or something like that instead of like this uh massively upsetting uh, traumatizing (laughs) experience (laughs) and uh, i mean yeah so it got a a mixed reception of course martyr you know at Cannes, you always hear stories about how all these movies you know it gets walkouts fainting vomiting bursting into tears wouldn't be can without a few bursting into tears (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Oh God. I, whenever I hear stories of, of, uh, those kinds of reactions, I always just think either somebody has been, you know, planted in the theater to have that kind of reaction, <laughs> or it's just like people who really don't have the stomach for horror who shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah. I, there was another, uh, like before hereditary came out, I, read a lot of stuff about, you know, people crying and, you know, curling into the fetal position <laughs> on the floor and whatever. And it's like, okay, calm down. I, yeah, I agree, frankly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you go. That's your cultural context. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. As we leave 2020 in the rear view and head into 2021, I think we've all earned a resolution to treat ourselves. And nothing says treat like Tuckins, the inside-out, all-in-one s'more. With a crunchy, handmade graham cracker covered in decadent chocolate and wrapped inside a fluffy marshmallow on a stick, it'll be love at first taste. And there's all kinds of great flavors that you can mix and match, including original, cookies and cream, peanut butter cup, and even some rad seasonal flavors. Plus, unlike a regular s'more, Tuckins can easily be roasted indoors or out, over the fireplace, the fire pit, even the stovetop will do the trick. And they stay delicious for up to three months in the freezer. So head to Tuckins.com and use the offer code BEST20 to get a whopping 20% off your order, while also letting Tuckins know you heard about them from the Best Little Horror House. That's T-U-C-K-I-N-S.com and BEST20 for 20% off. So make the new year a sweet one with the No Mess Inside Out S'more. And now, back to the show. Now we'll start getting into the actual movie itself. So it's 1971, and uh, Lucy Juran escapes from this abandoned slaughterhouse uh, where she's been imprisoned and tortured for more than a year. And they really throw you into the vibe immediately. It's grainy footage. It's bobbing around as she's, as she's running, and she's all beat up. Really does a great job of making you really curious and uneasy right away. And she doesn't even say anything as she runs. She just kind of flails and screams wordlessly. It's a really intense opening sequence. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of feeling... You know, I I keep uh, repeating the same points over and over again here, but that feeling sticks through the whole movie where it's like each new scene, each new setup, there's these gigantic question marks like, oh my, what is going on here? (laughs) Um, And, you know, starting the movie kind of knocking you off your feet and just being, you know, like clearly something horrible has happened and then not coming back to the why for right. quite a while. So um, you're kind of left to forget that piece. And I love that kind of storytelling where it's just like dropping little clues and, you know, building up to revealing what the story is actually about instead of just laying it all out there. Yeah. And I like, I like when a, a director and a writer trusts their audience enough to, to know that people can, you know, d- delayed gratification is not the end of the world. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll keep that in the back of our mind. We don't, immediately lose track of the fact that this (laughs) little girl is escaping torture. Right. But similarly, when the hospital goes to check out where she was kept, they also don't find a lot of clues. They similarly have to have this delayed gratification. Right. She wasn't sexually abused, just quote, common abuse as the movie puts it. But um, in addition to the wounds uh, though, she's malnourished, dehydrated, and heck even has a mild case of hypothermia. (laughs) 
but despite it all, she won't say anything, and the perpetrators and their motivations remain a mystery to the characters in the movie and to us, and it does build this great mystery of, okay, we're going to be finding out who this is all, like, who committed this, how it's affected these people. You understand that you're going to be seeing the ripples of this moment through the entire movie. Lucy is placed in an orphanage, and she has a rough time acclimating, but she's eventually befriended by a young girl named Anna. And there's a really great transition here that I loved, uh, as the footage from the past is shown to be just that within the context of the movie as well, and the doctor pulls up the screen. I, I like, genuinely was like, oh, wow, like that was a really yeah. nice scene transition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anna doesn't think Lucy will remember. Like she's 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 like I don't think that she's going to be able to tell you anything. Um but when Lucy doesn't come to lunch and so they go to like check in on her and they find uh Anna or Anna finds her just covered in these deep wounds on her arms and she says it wasn't her. And again, you get to be like, okay, we're building this mystery, like what's going on? How is this happening? Less delayed gratification in this particular <laughs> instance because yeah. uh, that night, Lucy sees this scary figure sort of dashing about the room before looming over her bed and screaming at her. Cut to the title card. Great intro. Really just yeah. amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think all because there's like stuff where, you know, there's people hallucinating things and some things are are real and some things aren't and kind of the pursuit of the truth in this story knowing who you can believe and who you can't and knowing that sometimes there are people who are like both reliable and unreliable narrators and Lucy is a prime example where it's like there there is stuff about the story that she's telling that is true that she's telling this, the truth about things that have happened to her but she's also seeing things that aren't there and because of that it's like it's really difficult for for Anna and uh, for everybody else in her life to understand whether it is just trauma and mental illness and PTSD right. or if her you know that there is stuff in her story that is actually real right it's challenging, certainly, for them. And um, I think that that's where some of the horror really comes from for me. In addition to the physical you know, trauma that we see inflicted on these people, there is sort of that fear of if I start to lose my grip on reality, will people believe me? Will I even be able to tell that this is happening to me? Because you are able to see this little girl going through this, you're able to empathize with her. And really, it's a scary notion. Yeah, yeah. And also just, you know, the, the layers being peeled back in the story that every time it feels like there's going to be a dead end, you know, like Anna coming into the house and seeing that Lucy has, you know, caused all of this destruction, killed everybody there, and is still not really articulating what has happened to her and why she's done this, you know, just saying, like, they hurt me. Yeah. But not really being able to, you know, lay out exactly what happened and give a clear, like, trajectory for, uh, you know, her decision-making. Right. Um, so it's all this kind of intense you know, violence that's occurred and just trying, uh, seeing Anna trying to like balance wanting to support her friend who's, you know, like a sister to her, yeah. but also seeing that like people have been murdered and thinking she's 
really fucking gone off the rails. Sorry, am I? No, that's fine. I yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I figured but, they're old uh, enough to see the movie. They're old enough to yeah. hear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and that like the, you know, when the uh, the mother in the family is still alive and like kind of trying to help her without having Lucy see and um yeah, again, all of that uh it's like the first half of the movie, really. Yeah it's a constant series of like, you know, two steps forward, one step back where you think you understand finally a little bit more about what's going on or you're like getting towards understanding what's going on. And it, the, the reality of what is actually happening is so far from what you ever could have imagined. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And I doubly impressive that they managed to lay all of the seeds for this, uh, before the title card it's like what like seven right. minutes in and they've really planted all of these setups that uh pay off incredibly down the road right and one of those payoffs happens next 15 years later cut to mm-hmm. <laughs> uh lucy bursts into the home of this apparently normal seeming family uh the belfons gabrielle her husband and their children uh, antoine and marie and like you say, this scene goes on for a while where they're just like hanging out at breakfast. They're talking about like, oh, we had to pay so much money for you to go to school and now you didn't even want to do it. And now you're asking for more to go back. Like there's all of this like classic bickering that you're like, I understand exactly what they're trying to tell us about this family. You know, classic nuclear two and a half kids and two cars in the garage kind of thing. They do that. They let you sit in that for a while before Lucy bursts into this home and kills them all with a shotgun. So super intense. There's no like hesitation with the parents, but she does think twice with the kids and you are, you're like, okay, I think I understand how the way that this is going to shake out. And then she comes back to it. She steals herself and she does pull the trigger on the kids. And Lucy cries, and I really like this sort of small motion where she's still so full of rage and pain, and this didn't help her. This didn't actually do anything, and she points the gun at the corpses again, like she could shoot them again, and mm-hmm. she knows that it won't do anything, so she points the gun up at the, at the sky and just shoots again. Just really a, a really powerful scene. And also you know in in this moment there's this you know the uh the woman who she sees who she's kind of haunted by who's this sort of spectral representation of her trauma i mean it's you know based on something that she's actually experienced as well right. but having this kind of other tortured person who she uses as a representation of like her need to be free of her past and talking to this kind of ghost about, you know, saying she she's done it and they're dead and they can be free now. And I think, you know, seeing that she realizes that that's not the case, that this doesn't yeah. fix, fix everything. Like she's still, the trauma still stays, even though the the people who committed these terrible acts against her uh, are, are gone. Yeah. And, you know, she is seeking that release. You know, she it, it's really shocking when she, like, puts her hand in the blood and holds it up. Like, really striking imagery. Mm. And she calls Anna and tells her that this happened. And Anna knew that Lucy thought this was the family responsible, but is still shocked when she hears that Lucy killed them, saying that she thought that she was just there to scope them out. 
And so now we've seen the adult versions of both Anna and Lucy. They're played by Morgana Aloui and uh, Mylene Jampenois. And uh, Lucy is sort of relaxing in the aftermath when she hears some noises uh, before being attacked again by this woman who's been haunting her. And although we have seen some violence already in terms of, you know, this, this shotgun and everything, this is the first glimpse at sort of the unflinching, shocking attacks as this manifestation of guilt drags the razor across Lucy's back. Like, it's... I think it's really the first sign of the sort of movie that you're in for because mm-hmm. I I was like, all right, I get this movie. Like, it doesn't seem like it's going to be that crazy. And then suddenly that scene kicks in, and you're like, okay, this is really ratcheting up in a in a yeah. really intense way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that is uh, more in keeping with the the violence and something like high tension where it's just like you know how in normal horror movies somebody might like get stabbed or something and you'll see the knife going in but then it's kind of you know that's it it's not like a really intense close-up of the wound or right. anything and this movie is like no we're going to you know they microscopic detail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean especially i mean so i just talked about misery the other day mm-hmm. and we talked about sort of how there is this interesting level of restraint where they show the hobbling and you know you see the first foot go and you see it get wobbly but after that they cut away for the second one she she swings and then you don't actually see it and for this because they want you to feel that uncomfortability um it really does linger on it for a long time and they say no look look at what we're trying to tell you (laughs) and uh It's. I just think that um, it's really it's a it's a powerful moment uh, in terms of of shaking you and being like, all right, heads up, gang. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's another thing. Uh, the just briefly talking about misery. That moment has always stuck with me because, like in the book, she chops, chops his foot it, off, right? <laughs> uh, and I think you know, when I saw that for the first time, again, being a precocious kid, like I read the book and I was like expecting, you know, waiting for that scene and just being like, oh man, they chicken out. It's not real. That's not what happened. <laughs> um, but you know, it's a Rob Reiner movie. I think you have to be exactly. a, little, uh, exactly. a, a little softer. <laughs> and so Anna meets Lucy there and she says that the woman hurt her even worse than, than Anna ever knew. Like you say, she is sort of, trying to tell her without really being able to and anna is willing to help she she is fully on board she she starts trying to dispose of the bodies that night but she does discover that the mom of the family is still alive anna goes to rest again she's i guess trying to think of a plan to help her but we see via flashback how Lucy escaped in the first place now. And the we see that it's the mom uh, broke her ankle, tripping over a shackle, leaving Lucy free to run. And this is also, unfortunately, when we see that Lucy left another girl behind. And this is what she's tortured by in addition to, you know, the series of traumatic scars left on her by the actual assault on her. She feels this guilt of leaving this other woman behind, especially having looked into the room, made eye contact with her (laughs) and then been like, ah, shit, I gotta go. Right. Um, right. It's, it's understandable, but we see sort of why she does feel 
this guilt and uh, and is tortured by it. So yeah. I also, I like, you know, we get the confirmation of it shortly, but I do like that the movie lets you piece together that this attacker is just a manifestation of the guilt, you know? Again, mm. it's sort of like trusting in the audience to be able to put the pieces together and be like, oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah. But also, I mean, you know, not to keep skipping ahead in the story, but no, like no. the, you know, later on, there's a, a another woman who's been tortured who's in a similar situation and who kind of you know, there's a, uh, an echo, uh, of the, this ghostly manifestation. And so it's like constantly having these situations where the first time you see a character like that, it's a figment of Lucy's imagination. And the second time you see it, it's actually a, a real person. So constantly kind of keeping you on your toes as to what's real and what's not and whether things are in people's minds or actually happening. Yeah. It's really great. Anna is helping the mom to escape when Lucy shows up, she finds them and she finishes the job by hammering her head a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, she, she does. <laughs> oh boy, she's not taking any, <laughs> she says I messed up once. I'm not messing up again. Um, and Lucy freaks out about Anna trying to help the mom and then gets attacked by this manifestation again who box cutters her arms or Lucy has a box cutter and uh, the, the manifestation uses a razor blade, but we cut between her perspective and Anna's a few times in a really effective way to get this confirmation that it's Lucy doing it to herself with this box cutter. It's mm -hmm. really brutal. I mean, one of the things that really like gets me still for horror is self-harm stuff. And yeah. like, this is just really hard to watch for me yeah. in a really yeah. good way. It's very effective, but goodness gracious, it's intense. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I mean, you know, seeing the shifting back and forth of the two perspectives and you know, finally having some kind of confirmation that this is like Lucy manifesting things in her mind, but it's still, yeah, massively upsetting. Really, <laughs> really horrible. Lucy cuts her own throat finally. And I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on her motivations because for, for my money, there's sort of three things that could have been going through her head, which is she realized that it was in her head and she was upset about this realization that her trauma would never leave her like this the despair that despite her accomplishment that she wasn't being left alone or that the attacker finally getting one over on her and we're just looking at it from anna's perspective but that if we were looking at it through lucy's perspective we would have seen this this woman you know cutting her throat and it wasn't necessarily as intentional by on Lucy's part as we're seeing her. Yeah, I think um, elements of all those things, and I would even add a fourth, which is that she realizes that Anna is never going to believe her. That she she feels like because Anna was trying to help the the mom, it's an acknowledgement that Anna thinks Lucy is just you know gone off the rails. That all of this stuff is in her mind, and that maybe none of this has actually happened, and she's just randomly chosen this family who she's seen in a you a know newspaper, newspaper story. Yeah. 
And I think she even says something about... Yeah, she says you're like the doctors, you know, you think that I'm making it all up. Right. And so I think a combination of just, like, realizing that she's not going to get the relief that she was hoping for. It's not like instantly there's this magical lifting of all of her trauma from killing this family. Um, And also feeling like... I don't know if she feels betrayed, but she feels, like, just deeply upset. Yeah, like, her last tether uh, was not as uh, as sturdy as she thought. Right. It's it's really great. I mean, the fact that we're able to even have this discussion, I think, really talks about how complex these characters are and how interesting their motivations are and everything that um, not a lot of movies are able to accomplish, you know, being able to flesh out a character in this way where you're able to sort of look at their motivations and, and really try and parse out where these elements are coming from. Uh, It's really well done. Yeah. Yeah. The next day, Anna is still at the family's house and she calls her mom from whom she had been estranged. And their conversation implies that Anna was at the orphanage where she met Lucy because she had suffered abuse from her parents as a child uh, as well. Although certainly not to the same extent. Right. And while she's on the phone, Anna hears some noises and discovers this secret underground chamber in the living room. And the security within is pretty wild, including not just huge padlocks, but also like retractable ladders and stuff. Right. And you're like, oh, they clearly learned their lesson from right. Lucy. Right, right. Uh, and that was another thing, like, you know, in, in terms of these, the, the constant shifting of the narrative and, um, you know, moving the goalposts in, in terms of your uh, expectations. Right. I am a big sucker for a secret passage. Like, you know, <laughs> who seeing is this, it? Who is yeah. it, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, seeing this, like, absolutely normal suburban house, and then all of a sudden there's just, like, this little, boop, little yeah. door that pops open, <laughs> and it's uh, instantly just makes me feel like I'm about 10, you know, like, really excited. Yeah. Like, ooh. It's exhilarating. Yeah. <laughs> the dread also, I think, builds incredibly in this moment because it's pitch black except for Anna's flashlight and the chains move and, you know, she's walking up and it turns out that imprisoned within this chamber is another horribly tortured young woman named Sarah, which of course proves that Lucy was in fact correct about this family, which, you know, that's a, a gut punch for Anna, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. right there, especially having just been accused by Lucy of this, you know, like you said, not not quite a betrayal, but certainly questioning. Yeah. Uh, I it's all, I mean, Sarah is hard to look at, frankly. Yeah. Like it, it's yeah. truly abhorrent what they did. And you look back and it's like a mere 30 minutes ago or whatever, these people were arguing about their son's schooling. Right. And it's such an incredible disparity and reflection of like how that is buried so far underneath for these people. And it's so clinical for them that they are able to function as this uh, stereotypical nuclear family. Right. It's, it's really remarkable. Yeah. And also, you know, when Lucy bursts into the house and kills the parents and is like talking to the son and saying, do you know what your parents did? And seeing it for the first time when you don't really understand what's going on, I don't think I had, you know, I know I didn't, wasn't anticipating what the <laughs> uh, the story would lead to. Yeah. But watching it again, seeing the kid's reaction, and it's like, yeah, I think he did know. And also the, the placement of the secret passage, it's like, it's not hidden. It's no. not like a secret thing in the parents' bedroom where the kids wouldn't have known about it. It's like right in front of the front door. <laughs> 
in the living room. Their schedules completely revolve around it as well. You know, they're like, all right, we have to make their food and everything. Time for, it's been 30 minutes, time to go down and beat the shit out of them. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I I agree. And as sort of a counterpoint to this uh, grotesqueness on screen in terms of the, uh, the effects, like the makeup effects and everything, Sarah, or excuse me, Anna reaches out in kindness. She reaches mm-hmm. out to touch her and to comfort her. And it's really kind of a beautiful moment in this mm-hmm. really bleak basement of a scene. Right. I, I really loved that. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, bringing her up into the house and trying to care for her and, yeah. like, putting her into uh, the bath. Although that is one minor uh, gripe that I have is this woman is covered in cuts, like yeah. deep, deep cuts. And she puts her into the bathtub and Ooh. she's just like, fine. And anybody who has ever cut themselves and tried to run it underwater, it's like, that stings. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did also think about that, but you know, she's been through worse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, probably the relief of being around somebody who's being kind to her is, is enough to distract yeah. her. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she puts her in the tub and everything and she uh, tries to remove like the metal blinder that's been embedded into her head. Again, hard to watch as this gets yeah. pried off. Yeah. And then later, you know, they spend a little time apart and Anna, find, like, she hears a noise and she finds Sarah chopping at her flesh with this knife. Mm-hmm. But when she tries to stop Sarah from doing this, a group of strangers arrives and shoots Sarah in the head before mm. dragging Anna into the secret chamber. And you're just like, holy shit. Uh, this is that reframing that you're talking about where everything up to this point has been like, oh, you know, it's a mental illness thing. Oh, no, it's it's actually happening. And, and it's like this secret society thing. Oh, no. All of a sudden it's home invasion elements like. They mm-hmm. really keep you on your toes. She, you're shifting from one awful image to another. <laughs> and and it's just, it keeps you, it's so fast too. It happens so quickly that right. it, it's it's just really incredible to be swept up in this ride. Right. And also in that moment, these people burst in. And up to then, again, like, you know, my perception of what was happening is like, it's limited to just this family. This family were, you know, capturing people and torturing them, and they've been doing it for however long, decades, and it's just them. And then you see these people bursting in, and they're, you know, some of them are wearing kind of paramilitary gear. And so my initial thought was like, it's the police, it's the authorities coming in, and they're going to think that Anna is the one who killed all these people, and somehow somebody saw her bringing bodies outside or something and called right. the police. And then again, almost instantly, having that assumption just turned on its head and it's like, nope, something completely different. Yeah, definitely. And I also I really want to also call out the filmmaking skill here where it's really impressive that they show us exactly what she's up against in terms of the security before even putting her in this in that situation. So even that gets reframed when we're like. Oh, we see her making her way through these security precautions to rescue someone else. But now we know exactly how difficult it will be for her to get out. And and our perspective and hers is completely shifted as well. So, right. Yeah. Anna meets their leader, who's an elderly woman referred to as Mademoiselle. And she explains that their group is exploring victims and the creation of martyrs. And the process means that they crack people open with trauma And they feed that pain coldly, systematically. They start to see things that aren't there. 
and she tells us that Sarah saw bugs running all over her was her particular manifestation, and and that was why we saw her uh, self mutilating with that knife earlier. But a martyr, quote, bears the sins of the world and transcends themselves. They go through these tortures in the hopes that with their suffering, they'll bring insight into the world beyond this one. And she demonstrates this, heavy quotes on demonstrates, (laughs) by (laughs) photos of people, atheists specifically on occasion, in the throes of agony, sort of looking heavenward. And, uh, you know, sort of being confronted with this lunacy, but also being like, well, all the other stuff that we thought was crazy turned out to be real. Like, right. it's such a uh, it's such a moment of like, I don't know what's going to happen next because everything that we thought previously does keep getting uh, reframed in a way that uh, you you can't really predict what's going to happen next. Yeah. So that's I mean it's great. It's and also that sort of like lackadaisical approach that mademoiselle is taking to explaining this to Anna is pretty frightening. Totally. It's like such, such a casual conversation. And it's very clear that nothing good is going to happen to Anna, whether she is chosen as part of this, you know, ongoing search for a true martyr or not. It's not like they're just going to let her go (laughs) after this, but mademoiselle is having this chat with her and she's just, it's like, it feels like a uh, a guided tour in a museum, and I think the the feeling having those giant pictures of past martyrs on the wall that's kind of like light projected from behind them, yeah. and the whole environment is really sterile and clinical, and it feels like you know a fancy office uh, hallway or something like right. that. So being in that environment and having somebody just discuss their work. As though it's, you know, she's touring a pharmaceutical company and they're just describing right. the, uh, the good work they do here. And it's like, that's the tone. It's not like you are in for it now. Yeah. It also, it calls to mind for me sort of like, oh, this would never happen. No, actually, you know, like people like Joseph Mengele did these fucked up experiments on people during the Holocaust and everything. And the way that they're presented you know, in his notes and everything are, it does have that casual nature. There's the casual cruelty that becomes, I think is what he's talking about in sort of the way that the monolithic media has sort of been like, there is just an element of cruelty that's become embedded into the way we treat everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. And that sort of leads to people not really viewing people as people, and, you know, once, you, once you've reached that step, it's, it's, you know, only a few more to basically this relationship between Mademoiselle and Anna here. And also, I think there's this feeling of all of the people who are in charge of this, uh, these experiments and the, the shady organization, they do feel empathy for the people who they are torturing. And there are little moments where they say, like, you know, Mademoiselle's like, oh, this poor woman having to suffer through all of this. But it's like, eh, it's a means to an end. Yeah. And the what, the goal that we're trying to achieve is so important that, you know, these people having to suffer through, there's no other way to, to make this happen than to have these people suffering in this terrible way. And we feel for them, but at the same time, we're not going to stop. <laughs> right. And so Anna does become the group's latest subject. I was like, okay, let me 
let me check how much time is left now that Anna is officially uh, in for what is clearly going to be hell. And I saw that there was a half hour left, and I was like, oh, let me strap in here because yeah. that's a lot of time for like what is uh, an immense amount of dread that I'm feeling <laughs> right. at, at what's going to happen to Anna. And it turns out that dread is justified because we spent some time with her, a non-specific amount of time, but clearly mm-hmm. a while in which she is just brutally beaten, degraded, humiliated, you know, it's not a nice situation to put it mildly. <laughs> right. Right. And at the time when I, when I saw this for the first time, I don't know if I'd ever seen a horror movie that had that kind of sustained, relentless torture and like just like absolute depravity <laughs> for for that amount of time. And like I said, I think maybe that sequence lasts five minutes. It might even be less than that, but it feels eternal because it's just this cycle of somebody coming down to force feed her this green slop that you see later on. Somebody's kind of blending it and it's like vegetables and fruit and whatever like all the nutrients she'll need but that's the only thing she gets fed is this kind of green slop force feeding her and then hitting her if she won't eat it if she won't finish it then having another man uh, a man come down really this big hulking guy and just absolutely beating the shit out of her and back and forth between those two things that's the only human interaction that she has and otherwise she's just chained to this chair yeah it's hell, basically. Like it's, yeah. it's basically hell on earth, and that isn't. I mean, that's their intention: is for her to basically be brought to the bottom of where a human can be in order to sort of cycle through the bottom, and come back around on top. Basically, is what they're looking for her to do. Eventually, all the things that Mademoiselle was like, this is what's going to happen, do start to happen to her, and she hallucinates a conversation with Lucy about how to stop being scared and. She says that the trick is to let herself go. And this does sort of play into what Mademoiselle was talking about when she mentions how it's about transcending yourself. And it does sort of, you're like, ah, that is how you stop being scared. But it also furthers their goals and plays into their hands. And you just feel very conflicted about sort of the entire situation that she's in emotionally as well as physically. Right, right. And... Yeah, that idea of like release um, being the sort of end game or like admitting defeat and kind of letting yourself go in a more profound way than just saying there's nothing I can do and I accept my situation, but more like giving herself up and saying that, you know, whatever uh, she lets the process take over. Um, and you know, she's still obviously an unwilling participant, but kind of accepting that there's no way out of this. Right. I was also, also thinking like that moment with Mademoiselle when she's in this basement and thinking that uh, about, uh, what must be going through her head that she's had confirmed that Lucy went through this terrible experience, that everything that she was trying to say actually happened to her and that she hasn't been making it up this whole time and being in this basement, like you said, seeing how complicated it is to get down into these cells and how like impossible it is to get out and knowing that's it. (laughs) Like whatever they have complete control. Now she, the time when she could have escaped and gotten away was, is long gone. And that, that, sense of realization like keeps building and building and i think that moment is where she finally just says 
all hope is gone. There is no way I'm getting out of this. And I think also a realization that she's going to die, that that's not like the, that is the only outcome. Right. Yeah. There, I mean, there's that nihilism we were talking about, folks. <laughs> right. But she does sort of transcend this state that she's in. She's much more calm. She eats, she drinks, whatever they provide. She suffers their beatings as peacefully as she can, as this peaceful music plays. And we realize that she is sort of progressing according to what they're anticipating. And she gets told that she's reached the final stage and Mm -hmm. she gets flayed alive and they really let it build. Mm -hmm. You know, again, there's this sort of unflinching camera eye where they just focus in on her counter to the previous unflinching camera eye, though. This is now that we know that it's really about her emotional and mental state instead of focusing on him cutting her skin which it doesn't seem like they would have shied away if it was integral to the plot we instead focus on her face and we Mm -hmm. see the emotions crossing her face the pain and you know the endorphins that pain automatically does bring forth as well just because of body chemistry Mm -hmm. it is an a really interesting and subtle camera decision i think that pays off extremely well yeah yeah and that moment where this woman who's been a part of the torture comes down and kind of very tenderly whispers to Anna, like, you know, you're doing great. Ugh. Everything, your, your pain is almost over. You, you know, everything's, everything's going to be okay. Just one more stage. And right. like the dread of what that stage could be. And also once again, totally defying your expectations, like anything that you could have imagined was going to happen. It's like, it wasn't going to be that. And the fact that she's like strapped into this contraption that looks almost like a gyroscope. It's like, you know, making it so that she can be turned every which way so that like every bit of skin can be removed except her face. Horrific, (laughs) utterly horrific. She doesn't scream, though, despite the clear no. agony. She has, you know, sort of retreated inward and uh, and is peaceful. And when she is revealed, it is grotesque, like we said. But she is both awake and not fighting back still. Like, he goes to, like, get her wheelchair, the like, move the, the foots out of the way. The foots. The feet out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, she lifts her feet to help him get it out of the way and you know she puts her hand into the manacle so that he can strap her in and you know it's gotta be insanely painful i truly can't fathom i can't even come close to fathoming what it must be like but she's quiet she's not fighting back she's positioned like a renaissance painting which Mm -hmm. i find to be pretty interesting yeah but it's clear that she has sort of achieved this transcendence she's entered the euphoric state and you're kind of in awe looking at her taking all of this abuse so stoically right mademoiselle arrives eagerly when she hears that this has happened and anna whispers into her ear again like you say we don't get to hear what it is that she tells her which is crucial crucial mm-hmm. to this ending yeah yeah members of the society start to gather at the house to learn what anna told mademoiselle and we find out that she's the fourth to reach this stage but the first to communicate it so you know she is sort of she has transcended even amongst the people who have reached this point point. Mm-hmm. and as mademoiselle and her assistant wait for everyone to arrive he asks mademoiselle if what anna said to her was clear mademoiselle says yes 
and asks him in turn if he can imagine what comes after death. And so he says no. Mademoiselle says, keep doubting, and then (sighs) pulls out a handgun and shoots herself with it. And Pascal himself said that the real point of everything is revealed only in the final seconds of the movie. For me, this was the exciting part of the project. And, I mean... It really is such a shocking reveal here. It's like a, a fascinating and dramatic twist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it, in keeping with the rest of the film where it's like constantly keeping you on your toes and uh, trying to subvert your expectations and yeah, keep, keeping you guessing and keeping the surprises coming until the very last second. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when you, again, sort of consider it, you're like, oh, there is this level of depression that comes after fulfilling a huge goal where you have to like consider what's next and it's you sort of like question what was her intention what happened she just found out like she just all of her life's work had led to this point and now she she goes and kills herself why all of these thoughts are racing through your head you know to me it seems like the removal of the suspense and doubt like you know this it is sort of this like huge high and then when you plummet the the blowback of this huge endorphin rush and you bottom out i she's like okay now i have this done i have this answer why would i like what's next now i just have to move on i know exactly the end point Mm -hmm. and she's lived her whole life in pursuit of this thing and now she holds it in her hands and she thinks "Uh, okay i got it now what it's just such a such an interesting uh, such an interesting choice and whether the afterlife is there or not, you know, it's really all about Anna's decision as well, because we don't know if she lied, if she's capable of lying right now, what she saw, if she saw anything, this ambiguity that you mentioned enjoying, I think it's great as well. I love being able to sit there and be like, Oh, what, what does it all mean? What do I think she said? You know, tell me a little bit about what you sort of come away from this, this, shocking twist with yeah i like horror where there's a supernatural element that could be real or could be imagined and it's kind of left uh open-ended at the end to you know it's it's up to the viewer to determine whether they think the the supernatural element is is actually real and that's kind of how i felt about this that it's like whatever is i also am a sucker for a movie where there's like a you know, a little whisper of something at the end and you never know what's said. It's like, you know, lost in translation or something. Um, But uh, yeah, I love that it could go in a million different directions. You know, Anna could have said, you are so dumb. All of this was a waste. (laughs) Nothing matters. And I don't see anything (laughs) that that could have been the end of it. Or it could have been like, you know, explicit instructions from God telling her, you know, of the mysteries of the universe. And it's that like Mademoiselle can't handle it or it's, um, you know, uh, different. She she didn't go through the suffering to, to be able to get that knowledge. Could have, that could have been just blowing her frigging mind. (laughs) She couldn't handle it. Yeah, some of my favorite horror, like the ha- having that ambiguity there. I don't. I, I'm a big fan of a writer named Paul Tremblay, who a- almost all of his books, it's it's the same kind of feeling where there's like 
some kind of supernatural element that may or may not be there and it's it's left the the ending is kind of it's open-ended and um you are left to decide for yourself whether you think the supernatural element was real or not um so that that uh has always really appealed to me that being able to uh kind of choose your own adventure yeah um (laughs) i totally agree I, i also i think that it's such an interesting topic for him to sort of criticize in this way to be like the the knowledge of the afterlife removes all the importance of this one because either there's a heaven and this is just a bullshit waiting room or Mm -hmm. there's nothing and living your life pursuing another just wastes this one that you had and I, i just think it's such a fascinating topic for for pascal to be like you know don't stop looking ahead and thinking about preparing for the next thing and, and what's coming down the road, focus on what's happening now and live in the moment. And you know, your pain and your joy and really make them your own, take them into yourself and and be able to use them. Don't be haunted by the past, but don't be so focused on the future. I just think that it's, it's super fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's just like another, you know, in a movie full of opportunities to feel like you've been kicked in the teeth. It's just another (laughs) one at the end. This like, another, another gut punch as you're walking out the door. Right. Yeah. And and that basically is the end. Uh, So there's the root definition of martyr comes on the screen, which comes from the Greek word for witness. And then there's a shot of the catatonic Anna lying there skinless. And then more childhood footage of her and Lucy plays over the credits. And Boy, oh boy, what a ride. It, like you said, it really, you're just along with it. It's constantly reframing stuff, and it's just great. It's, it's such a powerful piece of artwork, and it, it really does feel like artwork. It's clearly meant to evoke feeling. You're supposed to get something out of it, not just something to kill some time and drop 10 bucks on for an hour and a half. I, I just think it's, it's really great. And now... We've reached the point, Adam, where we sum up why this isn't just a good piece of art and a good movie, but why it is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I will let you uh, start us off. First, as a a disclaimer, I am very, I find it very difficult to answer any kind of favorite (laughs) questions. And so uh, being as passionate about horror as I am, it's like, you know, I don't don't know if it's like choosing between my children, (laughs) but, uh, you know. A, a difficult choice. Sure. Um, so I will say uh, this: this sticks out to me as the the best horror movie because of the lasting impact that it had on me. It's it's pretty rare. I'm I don't know if I'm desensitized to horror violence, but um, it doesn't. You know, horror movies don't tend to to get under my skin. I've seen so many of them. I'm, I love them so much that it's like uh, generally something that I enjoy rather than something that kind of traumatizes me yeah and this one was a little traumatic it's like it feels like you know coming out of that theater into the sunshine was just like oh god you know really feel like something has happened to me instead of just um you know having a an enjoyable afternoon at the movies (laughs) so i think it's the the lasting effects that it's had on me and also that constant subverting of expectations that kind of storytelling is so incredible to me. It's it's my favorite kind of storytelling. I love being kept on my toes. And I'm the kind of person who, because I'm a cinephile, because I am obsessed with horror, 
I find it quite easy to predict the the trajectory of stories um, right. many many times, and so it's it's so refreshing to me when uh, a story just completely blindsides me constantly, um, and it's not just like you know M Night Shyamalan throwing in one twist at the end that's like oh that's the the button on the end, right. and it, even that is something that's become kind of expected from him, but this is like having those kind of moments happening consistently every five or 10 minutes throughout the whole film yeah. where it's like, you're constantly trying to reorient yourself. And, and I love that. Absolutely. And to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think it really not only executes what it wants to do to perfection. I think that it is absolutely communicating the thoughts that it wants to communicate. I think that it's, bringing up the discussion that it wants to have and that is first and foremost hugely important for a movie but in addition to that it has a lot of elements that i don't just think make it important but also a good movie like a movie that i you know enjoy maybe is not quite the word but it's you know what no i'm gonna say that enjoy is the word because (laughs) because it is fantastical and grounded at the same time. You know, the, the, there's ghosts, but there's also just this terrible, terrible ripples of mental illness and everything. And it's this secret society, but also it's really about like, just zooming in on this one person and her experience with it. And I just think that so much of this is functioning at an incredible level. And then for it to also explore important and serious issues while at the same time being sort of the representation of an entire film movement, I think is really incredible. And I think that it deserves it as well, that this isn't a case of like, Oh, this movie has this reputation, but only because it is grotesque or whatever. I think that this is um, an excellent movie that, like you said, uses the violence within to it's integral to the story. Right. And, uh, and for me, that's why this is the best horror movie ever made. Uh, Adam, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. I had an absolute blast talking about this movie with you. Please tell people where they can find you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Yeah. My show is called the spark parade. Um, I'm at spark parade on all social media and, uh, you can find out more information there and download links and all that kind of stuff. There you go. Easy enough. And similarly, Little Horror PHL is the username across pretty much everything. It's the website. If you want to uh, get ad-free and early and even bonus episodes of the show, you can check out Little Horror PHL on Patreon, where we have a couple tiers there that uh, get you various things. And if you're enjoying the show, rate and review on iTunes, please. It's very helpful. Um, That's it for me. Thanks a lot, Adam. Bye. Bye.